Luke in chapter 1. And I'm going to actually be preaching on something called the Magnificat, also known as the Song of Mary. One of the great poems, really, I think, in the church. And for those of you that pray the morning prayer, you probably know that it's one of the antiphons that we pray um, with Mary. And so we're going to be looking at that this morning. As Elizabeth greets Mary and the Holy Spirit moves, I just think about how filled with meaning this season of Advent is. And I think that sometimes we see Advent as the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and all that is a part of that, his virgin birth, all of the, everything involved with that, the manger, and you think of all of that, or we think of the other side of it, the promise of his return, the promise of his return. This morning, I want to speak about what his coming has done in the world and what he desires to continue doing in the world. Amen? And Mary proclaimed to Elizabeth, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Two things that I've heard over the last several weeks just really caused me to pause in my spirit. And so I'm going to bring up the first one and we'll deal with the other one towards the end of the sermon. Don't worry, it won't, be, it won't be that long. I'm not like getting you prepared for a really long sermon. The first one was a preacher um, that I was listening to on the radio, very, fairly well-known, definitely very educated. And he made this statement that made me stop. I was driving my car and I was just like, it's one of those things that just stuck in my spirit, in my heart. I was like, is that really true? And the statement was this, Christ is of no benefit to those who do not believe. And I guess, in a way, if he's talking about salvation, the reality that each and every one of us must come to a point in our life where we receive Christ for ourselves, that it's not something somebody else can do for us, I would say amen to that. But as Paul Harvey once said, that's not the whole story, right? The rest of the story is what I hope we look at this morning. It has been said that religion is the opiate of the people. But in the words of William Stanley, who was, or actually William Barclay, I'm sorry, who was a great Scottish theologian, he says that the Magnificat is the most revolutionary document in all of the world. Or as Francis Chan says, it is the kingdom, it is a kingdom turned upside down. It is the kingdoms of this world turned upside down. 
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that when you sent your Son, when you took on human flesh and became one of us, you turned the world upside down. And that you're still doing that today, even though sometimes we don't see that. Maybe even sometimes we don't realize that in our own lives. Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear, to know what you're doing. That we might not only know what you've done for us, but that we might live in the reality of that. Lord, give us hearts and feet to go where you've called us to go. To be who you've called us to be. Amen. And so if I was going to title this, I would say that it is the revolution of Jesus Christ. A revolution is a strong, strong word. If you look at history, there's been a lot of revolutions, and we're going to kind of look at one here in just a minute. Begins with the first revolution. There are going to be three revolutions that are outlined in the Magnificat. The first one is beginning in verse 51. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. And so the first one is a moral revolution, a moral revolution. You have heard it said, this, this, or this. And Jesus oftentimes talked about the law. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. You've heard it said, that you shall not commit adultery. And in the ancient world, the world that Jesus was born into, they were very good about rules. I mean, we're really no different, right? When we, when we act immorally as a society, what we do, we get together, we pass a new law, right? That's why, that's why Congress has a job year after year after year, right? They got a bunch of new laws they got to pass, okay, to somehow try and get us to do the right thing. And in Jesus' day, a lot of it was about appearances, wasn't it? A lot of it was about appearances. But Jesus shattered all of that. In the Magnificat, it says that he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. I don't know about you. Have you ever been proud in your inmost thoughts? And Jesus said unto them, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Christianity is the death of pride. We cannot come to Christ with our pride intact. I was taught in seminary that the meaning of sin was like an archery term, to miss the mark. So you're like shooting at a target and you miss it. And if that is the case, if Jesus is the goal, if Jesus is the mark, then I can never be proud. For in fact, on my best day, I fall short. Amen? When I've done some wonderful thing and helped somebody out and I'm really tempted to pat myself on the back, all I have to do is look at the cross and I realize that I've fallen short. But here's the wonderful news. Here's the good news of the gospel. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. 
You see, although Jesus came so that the proud could no longer be proud, he also came bearing God's mercy for a broken and sinful world. Jesus came even though we were broken. He did not come because he looked at the world and said, they're really close. They've almost got this. I'll just come and urge them on a little bit more. He did not. Placid Kapow, you've probably never heard that name, was born into a chaotic world, to say the least. His entire life spanned the period of the French Revolution. I don't know if you've ever read anything about the French Revolution. We don't tend to here in our country because we talk about the American Revolution, right? But the French Revolution was an attempt by man to throw aside all authority. That wasn't just politicians, folks. That was clergy also. In a one-year period called the Terror, 40,000 people would be taken before the guillotine and beheaded. In that same period, one in every 50 Frenchmen and women will have been arrested. Can you imagine that? One in every 50 people were arrested as, quote, enemies of the state, as we would call it today. It was a brutal, brutal time. And Placid had his own problems in life. As an eight-year-old boy, he was messing around with a gun with his buddy, and his buddy blew his hand off. Pretty rough beginning. Placid had wanted to take up after his father to be a cooper, which was somebody that worked with copper and made things out of metal, but missing a hand, that's kind of a tough thing. And so Placid will become a liquor store owner. I don't know how else to say it. I guess they didn't have ABC stores there. One day, the parish priest comes to Placid. Placid considered himself kind of a poet. He was, that was his thing. And so the parish priest comes to him. Placid was not really an active church member. We're not really sure. History doesn't really record why he even went to him. I'm going to suggest it was the Holy Spirit. But he goes to Placid and he asks him to write a poem for the rededication of a church there that had been remodeled. And so Placid does. In his own brokenness and fallenness, he writes these words, Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. For truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. And that leads us to the second revolution, the social revolution. Mary proclaimed that night, he has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. Not the kind of revolution that the French had experienced that led to nothing but blood flowing in the streets, but a revolution brought on by God, a revolution of love. For Christ has put an end to the world's labels and prestige. This reality 
The words that Placid wrote that night have changed and are changing the world. It would be this from this idea that not only we would get the hymn, Holy Night, but it would be this idea flowing out of first parts of Europe, eventually to the United States, that would free the world once and for all, not for all, because there's still slavery today, but from the curse of slavery. The people began to see that it doesn't matter what you look like, you're still created in God's image. And that Christ came to set all of humanity free. And so in that, I do not believe that pastor was correct. I believe Christ has benefited the entire world and came to do so. It's just that you and I get to have this wonderful personal relationship. We get to walk in the freedom that he brings and that so many around us need. Pope John Paul II wrote, Christ cannot be kept out of the history of man in any part of the globe, at any latitude or longitude. The exclusion of Christ from the history of man is an act against man. Even people who don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, even those who actively oppose him, still love under, live under his dominion and in a history shaped by him. In Jesus, all of humanity is elevated. 2 Corinthians, and if you have your Bible and you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, we read this. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. As Christians, we no longer see the world the way the world sees the world. Because we are called to be revolutionaries. Her name was Keisha Thomas. In 1996, she was 18 years old. She lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And on a warm summer day, and I don't know if you've ever been to Michigan in the summer, you think we have humidity? Yikes. She was called out by her pastor to join a protest, a peaceful protest. The Ku Klux Klan had decided that they were going to have a rally in downtown Ann Arbor, Michigan. And her pastor called Keisha and the rest of the flock to go out and to oppose, to stand in peaceful protest against their hatred. I mean, they were in full regalia, the sheets, the pointy hats, everything. History records that all of a sudden, and Keisha writes that all of a sudden there was a there was a disturbance amongst the people that had come to oppose these KKK members. A guy by the name of Albert McKeel Jr. was standing amongst them wearing a shirt with 
the Confederate flag, a swastika tattooed on his arm. He was hate that had actually come to encamp amongst them, and somebody cries out, kill the Nazi. And the people in the crowd begin to beat and pummel McKeel. But something in Keisha told her that this could not be so. She ran into the crowd and shielded him with her body. Even to the point that the very people that she had come there with were actually striking her in their anger. We'll never know why in the world he came there. He never would say. In fact, he'll die years later. But after his death, Mikhail's son and 12-year-old daughter will give Keisha a call and actually will meet with her. And the daughter will thank her for her sacrifice and for her love. And will explain to her that they are not their father. That they do not believe the things that their father believed. And she will write, when I heard that, I thought this was the future and the past of what peace was created. The real accomplishment of all this to me is to know that his son and his daughter do not share his views. You see, it would have been so easy for her to join with everyone else. But I believe the Spirit led her to protect him when no one else would. An 18-year-old girl. Can you imagine? And that brings us to our final revolution. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an economic revolution. Now, please hear this. When I use the word economy, I'm not just talking about money. That tends to be what we think of when we hear the word economy. Now, it's true. The church has changed the world. If you look around in town, many, many of the hospitals here in our town and many were started by the church. Orphanages, Christian missionaries have gone out to proclaim the gospel. But the word economy speaks of everything that we have, including our time, our passions, our money, whatever it is. Whatever it is that God has given to us, the gospel calls us to something greater. He has filled those who are hungry and those who are rich, he has sent away empty. A non-Christian society is a society in which each person is simply out to amass as much stuff as they can for themselves. And even, sadly, for those oftentimes that aren't desiring to amass stuff for themselves, it's all about me, right? It's self-love. It's Family time, all the things that we want to add and we can tack on to that. Christ has taught us to be motivated by his love in whatever it is that we have, in whatever it is that we do. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul goes on to tell us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. God has called us to be ambassador of his mercy because we have received his mercy. Because our pride has been broken. Because we have realized that no matter who we see on the street or whatever, they are created in God's image. And that he loves and cares about them. And that he has called us to minister to them. Lives turned upside down. Turned upside down for the gospel. I told you I was going to share one other thing that I had heard on the radio, and I will do this kind of in closing. A lady had called in to a Christian talk show. I'm not sure where it was at. I don't, I don't believe it was Birmingham. And she was in tears. She was quite upset. And she was telling the person, she said, you know, my family has been looking for a church for two and a half years. But we have two children that struggle with autism. And nobody wants us. She actually told the story about one, I'm sure, well-meaning lady that met her in the narthex or the entry after service and actually told her, this probably isn't the place for you. And I really believe the reason God put that on my heart not to brag on us as a church, but I felt if that person had come here, we would have received her and her children, and we would have loved her. And I believe that's why God is calling us to the things that he's calling us to. Because we are a people who have felt deeply God's mercy in our lives, and we believe that God is God's kingdom continues to come. We pray for that every time we say the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's the reason so many of you have poured your lives into the food pantry, into pregnancy centers, into all of the ministries that we're a part of. And it's because of that, a number of months ago, God put something on my heart. And I shared it with Father Mark, and I'll be very blunt with you. I shared it with Father Mark, hoping he would say, no way. But he didn't. In fact, he said, I'm going to pray with you about that. And not only am I going to pray with you about that, I'm going to go to get more information about that with you. And he and Stacy traveled. And all the time I'm thinking, well, at any moment, Lord, this could be, you know, you could stop this. <laughs> but he has not chosen to. But here's the thing. God can give us an idea. He can put something on our heart. But if he doesn't put it on your heart, if you aren't willing to be the hands and the feet of Christ in the world, the ambassadors that are sent out from this place, it won't matter. We believe God has called us to begin a recovery ministry to those in our community that struggle with addictions. And I'm not talking about just chemical addictions. 
I'm talking about the hang-ups and the habits that all of us have had. Whether it be addictions to just trying to get money. Addictions to things like pornography. Hang-ups like I just really can't control my eating. And I don't know about you, but I think a lot of us have been there, haven't we? And Christ has set us free, or he's in the process of setting us free, and we stand every day in the promise that he will, and we walk step by step. And so this is, I believe, God calling us to walk step by step with people in our community that are struggling. Maybe they've never, never felt God's mercy personally in their lives. Maybe they felt it, but they're so ashamed to come into a church because they still struggle with these things. It hasn't all just gone away instantly like they had hoped. Like I said, the reason that I struggled with that and had the hard time even bringing that to Father Mark is because it is not an easy thing. Those people that said that to the lady with the kids with autism, I don't think their intent was to be cruel. You've ever been with someone that has a severe, we have someone in our family that has autism pretty severely. It's difficult. It's difficult. But that second revolution says it really doesn't matter. They're created in God's image. And we have no choice but to bring the message of reconciliation, the message of God's love. Amen? Amen. So be it. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.